church. And what that means is every single time I take the platform, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. And I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, you can borrow one of ours. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Three of you think that every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, uh, hey, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We've been in this series uh, for many weeks. I'm not sure the number of weeks. I've lost count. Count And uh, we took a break during our holiday season uh, to do our series called The Church. And now we're going to jump back in uh, to the second half of uh, kind of the book of Mark, more, more than halfway through. But uh, we're going to look at some very important uh, passages today. And so the Gospel of John, chapter number 14, you can say amen when you're there. So chapter 14, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to uh, read, uh, read uh, a few verses here, give you kind of some context for the book and where we're at in the book, uh, and then uh, maybe the, give you some theological implications of the text, how to think about the big picture, and then hold, hold, ultimately try to give you something practical at the end to think about as you leave. So look at verse uh, one of chapter number 14 it says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let not your hearts be troubled. I want to read it again. Let it sink in for you. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way and where I'm going, the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text. We thank you that you would help us still our hearts, quiet our minds, Help us focus on the person of Jesus all the more today. And let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. See, this uh, book, and maybe, I don't know what your kind of thoughts about the Bible 
are and kind of how you interact with the Bible. But a lot of times people treat the Bible as if it's a, a grouping of uh, sayings like uh, a fortune cookie. And you can just open up and, and, and somehow they, they, fortune cookies and the Bible both have ribbons a lot of times. And, and you think that you can open it up and you'll find some, a, a good nugget to, to kind of focus on or, or think about. And, and yet, what if I told you that the Bible is less like a series of sayings like fortune cookies to give me good wisdom, although there are some uh, sayings in the Bible that are good and I can kind of hold on to. Uh, what if I told you that the Bible is more like an encyclopedia? It's more of a library of books rather than just one particular book. It's actually 66 books and they're all written quite different. And, and so the gospel of John is written different than the epistles of John. We call them the, the little Johns in the bag, John 1, 2, and 3. And he also wrote the book of Revelation. And then he wrote this particular book. And, and he writes it much different. See, there are different genres in the book. There's different literature in the book and literary devices used in different ways. And so you have what we call the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell the stories of the life of Jesus. But John even stands in contrast to the other three gospels. There's the epistles or the letters to the churches that the apostles uh, write to individuals churches like the Corinthians or uh, first and second Thessalonians. They're the, the pastoral epistles where, where Paul writes to Timothy and Titus and they're individual letters that we then glean from. All of these are put together in order to tell us the story of God and man and how ultimately God became a man. And we find the answer in the plot and the plan of the story, finding its fruition in the person of of Jesus. We believe the Bible is one continuous story from beginning to end and tells the story of Jesus. That's why we say, hey, this story is all about, we wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And, and so then I have to understand that I, I'm not just reading a uh, a manual for life. I'm not just e reading a uh, book that helps me with good sayings or wisdom. Although if you were to read Proverbs, you might find stuff that sounds a little like fortune, fortune cookies. And it will say things like a wise man does this, but a foolish man does this. A wise person does this, but a foolish person does this. You might re uh, find poetry in there in the book of Psalms. And, and, and what you'll find is that uh, I have to look at the whole entirety of the book, not just opening it up and finding my favorite Bible verse. How many of you have a favorite but this is a trick? Uh, I mean, uh, you know which verse should be your favorite? All of them, right? Somebody say amen to that. Because what can happen if I just have my favorite one, I put it on the refrigerator, I put it on uh, my, uh, embroider it on the Bible cover, remember those trapper keepers? And, uh, and, and, and I, I put it on my, my Bible, what can happen is I focus so much on that one particular verse that I actually exclude the other verses. And then what happens is that verse actually, my favorite one, doesn't actually end up meaning what I thought it 
meant. In the academic world for studying and looking and interpreting the Bible, we call this proof texting. Taking one particular text, excluding the other text. And if I do that, I actually may miss the point of that text. Are you with me? And so uh, what I have to do is look at these these passages in its context, in its entirety, and uh, John writes much different than the other gospels. He, he was a young man when he followed Jesus. How many of you know that like in your teenage years, there's some memories that become ultra vivid for you as a young person. And, and yet some of us don't remember what we did last week, but you remember what it was like to be 17. Amen. And some of us still in our minds, uh, we're a lot younger than we actually are. <laughs> uh, some may say, oh, oh no to that. And, and, and yet John wrote this when he's older, but yet he has a mind and writes it like a young man. Because some of the most formative years of his life, like seeing his leader, his friend, his rabbi, his teacher, his mentor die on a cross and not stay dead, but rise after three days. And if you see a dead man walking, it will fundamentally change you. And so these men, you think you have vivid teenage memories, him at 17, 18, 19 years old, and the three and a half years of following Jesus would have been the most vivid uh, memories that he could ever have and almost keeping him young in his mind and he writes like a young person he leaves a lot of the details out right if you talk to your teenager about a story you're like yeah yeah yeah, yeah but tell tell me tell me what really happened tell me that I want to know more about this they want to move you from theme to theme you don't worry about it you know it was fun and and yet John has a specific purpose and as he writes the book he jumps us from theme to theme, all with a particular goal in mind. And he gives us that goal in John 20 and 22. It says, I write these things and many more things could have been written, but I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that's not his last name. You're welcome. Uh, that's a title, which means Messiah or anointed one, Savior. But not only is he anointed Savior like a Moses or a David, uh, it, it, those are all pointing to the ultimate Messiah, Christ coming. And oh, he's not just anyone. He's not just an ordinary man. He's actually the son of of God and not how you think about sons. He's completely different. He's going to, he's going to extrapolate that and actually expound on that. What you mean, it's beyond your dimension of father and son. He's the Christ, the son of God, and that you may believe that he is who he says he is. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his ultimate goal. And so he writes these stories and these themes up into this particular point in time. We've been looking at kind of the big stories over periods of times. It's more like a year or months at a time. And now what we do is we've zoomed in. Jesus is in the last week of his life. Now it's actually the night in which he will be betrayed. And he's been in the upper room. Many of you know this story where when they come in for this last meal, this famous last supper, Jesus got down and he uh, washed the disciples' feet before 
dinner. And now he's going to have several different speeches around the table and that's going to lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be betrayed. And this particular passage is around that table with his friends after Judas has been dismissed and said, hey, do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And then he moves to his friends and he says things like this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. We're going to deal with this idea of troubled hearts. And then he goes on to say, I prepare a place for you. I prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. And then we get to this famous line that echoed throughout millennia and centuries where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's what's difficult about this particular passage that we can't proof text or only look at this one particular text. We actually have to keep going with what he says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says this that oftentimes gets left out these days because we want to make Jesus sound more palatable to our friends. Oftentimes we don't say this next line because it would make us seem like we're exclusive or bigoted. And, and yet he says this and we have to deal with this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. See, the things Jesus said forces us to deal with exactly who Jesus is. Is. C.S. Lewis made this, this argument famous and, and ultimately that you have to wrestle with the person of Jesus. And maybe you're here today and, and you don't know about this Jesus thing or the church thing. Let me, let me persuade you that you have to decide. And this is an individual thing. It's not up to the pastor or the church. It's up to you as an individual to decide. And Jesus has not left you room except to decide to put him in one of three categories and and it's because of the types of things that Jesus actually said he said things that cause you to put him in categories that will not allow you to just leave him as maybe a moral teacher or good teacher or just one of other religious leaders. Maybe that's how most people are persuaded. They believe in God and they're okay with God and God is generally, you know that most people believe in God, but here's what Jesus says. He says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. He actually goes from the general and he becomes very specific and he pulls your attention to himself, causing this to possibly contradict one another if the God you believe in is separate from the person of Jesus. He wants you to see that he and the Father are one in the same. He is God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. I've heard this somewhere before. He says, I want you to go from the general to the very specific. Believe in God, but believe also in me. And so uh, he's going to go on and say, I go to prepare a place for you. 
my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. Thomas goes, hold on a sec, the literal one, the one who questions the resurrection, who says, I won't believe unless I I put my, my finger in his side. He wants empirical evidence. He's the skeptic. And maybe you find yourself in that place. And so he hears Jesus say this thing and he's looking for the roadmap. He's like, I'm going. He's like, okay, but we don't know where you're going. He's like, you know the way. And tell them I said hello. And uh, it's Pastor Joe at the button. <laughs> we got some podcast listeners. And yet he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And then he says this line after Thomas asks him, he says, hey, we don't, we don't know where you're going. He says, you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Thomas says, show us the way. What are you talking about? And he says this line that forces you to deal with the things that Jesus actually said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. See, now I gotta deal with him. I can't make him a good moral teacher because he's saying he's exclusive. I can't put him one among many. I have to decide. I don't, I don't I get to put him on the shelf with everybody else and, and, and see him as one among many. All of a sudden, he's trying to pierce through our reality and show you something beyond what you can touch, taste, see, or feel. He's actually speaking to the heart, trying to show you something beyond your perception. He cannot merely be a good teacher if he's lying with the things he's saying. Because if he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, and he knew that was a lie, you couldn't call him good. If he's deceiving people, he's a con man. He's getting now billions of people to follow him over millennia and, and, and you call him good and he says that he's the only way to God? Well, now I have to deal with that. What do you mean? C.S. Lewis made this argument famous. He's either liar and if he is lying, he's not good. You can't call him good. If you ask any other teacher, if you were to ask Gandhi, are you God? He was like, son, you, 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 you're, you're crazy. If you were to ask Muhammad, are you God? No, he would rent his clothing and, and kill you as a heretic. And yet Jesus is saying, believe in God, believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. None of these other moral teachers, these religious teachers, would even dare make that claim. And yet Jesus makes that claim and moves him beyond just moral teacher or fortune cookie writer. He's more than just wisdom nuggets for you to live your life. You have to decide who he is. Is he lying? And if he is, he's a con man. He's not good. He may even be Satan himself for deceiving as many people as he has. 
Or maybe you just think he's crazy. You think the Jesus thing is crazy. You think this is a lunatic. Man, Jesus actually believed this stuff, but it wasn't true. He's crazy. He's crazy on the same level of someone who claims to be a poached egg. He has lost his rocker. I mean, his, his elevator goes to the top floor, but the doors don't open. You know what I'm saying? He's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? Like he, th- this guy's off his rocker, man. And, and yet... How in the world could crazy convince his brothers to follow him and believe that he was God in the flesh? See, logic would tell you it's impossible. But, or maybe logic would tell you if you looked closer, how many of you got a crazy brother? Don't look at him. Don't look at him. <laughs> right? Right? And, and yet, how many of you know if your crazy brother called you up and said, hey, I got this investment plan for you? We go like, that's a Ponzi scheme, right? Like, and you'd be like, uh, hey, I, I aren't trusting you with anything. Like you would rat him out. Maybe your brother, when you were younger, convinced you to get in on the plot. But when stuff hit the fan and mom and dad came in the room and said, trouble's coming. And, and remember when, when people still discipline their children anyways. And, and remember you're afraid of that. And you were worried that that was coming down on you. You would say, he did it, right? Crazy. My brother convinced, no, mom, dad, it wasn't me. It's all him. She did it. He did it, right? But that's not what happened with Jesus's brothers. Actually, they mocked him at one time in the height of his ministry, even after mom told him about the wedding at Cana, how he turned water into wine, party's over. He's like, nope, keep going, right? Like, and yet he hear of this stuff. They've seen miraculous things around him, but they mock him. Hey, there's a festival going on, Jesus. Everyone's going camping for the weekend, the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody's grabbing their RV. They're all heading down to the valley, and there's going to be lots of people. It's going to be, it's going to be crazy. It'll be cotton candy and corn dogs and the whole deal. And, and once you show, everyone's going to be there. You don't have to go around these little villages anymore. Just show them something spectacular that all people will believe in you. Go ahead and do it, son of God. And yet they go from mocking him, then the, the detriment of their brother. I mean, he was crazy, but he didn't deserve to die. And yet he dies as a criminal in front of the entire city, stripped and bare. And our mom had to watch this. Man, it was devastating. Talk about a terrible weekend. And then on Sunday, rumors hit this conspiracy theory that Marines were overthrown by fishermen and somehow it took an army to put the stone there and somehow just a few fishermen moved the stone and stole the body and no one saw it. Yeah, right. And that conspiracy still goes to this day. But logic would tell you that fishermen can't overthrow Marines and there was no way that they would get away with it for that long unless it was actually actually true that when they showed up on Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And then he revealed himself to hundreds and hundreds of people. And let me tell you, if you see a dead man walking, it will change you. And it did for his brothers. And they went from mocking him to being martyred for him. 
And listen, when stuff hits the fan, what we know with interrogations, what we know to be true, even in the worst types of schemes, when someone's going to get in trouble, when someone's going to pay for somebody else, they will always give them up unless it's actually true. So how could a lunatic convince his brothers that he's God and go to their deaths believing it? And how could they convince millions and millions of people over the course of two millennia that he died and rose again and that changes what I think about reality. See friend, you have to put him in one of three categories. He's either a liar and a con man, he's either a lunatic and he's off his rocker or he's indeed who he said he was and he is God in the flesh and he is Lord. And the only other option is to fall down at his feet and worship him as God. See, Jesus does not leave you room. He doesn't leave you room to just put him one among many. And it was particularly because of the types of things he said. So I can't remove these things. I have to deal with these things. I can't make him in a general way just God. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And now I have to deal. Now I have to wrestle. Now I have to to decide. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. See, what Jesus is doing is causing you to question the very reality that you are in. He's saying there is more than what you can touch, taste, see, feel, what you can experience with your your Senses. He's saying there's more to the story. You're trapped on the page. See, what if I told you that the story God is writing is bigger than the page you're living on? You're just like a stick figure stuck in flatland. You're stuck on a page, and there's another dimension, another realm, and you're like, you're starting to sound like a sci-fi kook, right? But what if when Jesus says this, because that's what he's saying. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And I think if he was talking to millennials today, he would say there are many dimensions. There are spaces and places that you do not know. See, what he's doing is he's trying to get you to see beyond the moment. He's trying to get you to see beyond what's present. We get stuck in the moment. See, you can only be right here, right now. Your perspective is limited. Your information is limited. Your scope is limited. Yet God's is not. He is beyond time and space. He's omniscient and omnipresent. He is all-knowing and he is all places at all times. And that is not true of you until you put a cell phone in your hand. Right? And now you think you got the whole world in your, you don't, right? And you, and you think that, that you can know everything, right? And you scroll and scroll and scroll and, and never quite see the bottom of that thing, do you? Right? The Bible predicted a bottomless pit, I'm just saying, right? And yet you think that the more knowledge, and you can be in all places. You can, now, now all the global problems have become local problems. And yet think about what it does to your heart. Anxiety, fear. When does your heart get troubled? It's when you don't know what's going to happen. 
Right? Think about all the times you've had to deal with something difficult, right? Actually not knowing and the build up to the report leading up, the anxiety and fear of not knowing was worse than knowing and having to deal. It's like, man, I just want to get it over with. I just want to know. Then we can deal with it. Once, once the test comes back, once we know what we're dealing with, then we'll, then we'll deal. But the fear and the trouble leading up is where the anxiety and fear. And yet Jesus starts this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. But not in a general way, not in a ethereal way, in a way that took the entirety of the ocean and poured it into a single glass. That's what it means for God to become a man. Believe in God, but believe also in me. And then he says, this is much bigger than you could imagine. He says, actually, the story is so much grander. In my father's house, there are many rooms, many dimensions. How many of you, when you were kids, heaven freaked you out, right? None of you? Liars. I was scared, right? Heaven scared me to death, mainly because they were like, yeah, you're going to be up there in one long worship church service. And I was like, that sounds like the other place. You know what I mean? Like, you're just going to be up there singing? Our band's terrible. Not, not this band. When I was a kid, uh, Joe, you did a great job, Right? <laughs> we're going to be in a, we're going to be stuck in a church service forever? No, right? Uh, what was that song? I'd rather go that highway to hell, you know? Like, uh, I want to go somewhere. At, how many of you, like, heaven was small in your mind? Like, it was for me. It was like, and, and like, you're going to be there with everybody? I was like, everybody? I don't even like crowds, you know? <laughs> right? You're like, you're a pastor. I'm like, I'm up here alone, right? <laughs> and, and, and like, uh, like, this idea that everyone's going to be packed in this small place. Like, it's going to be on a cloud and like, one, one white room, and everyone's there. And, like, is there going to be enough space for everybody? We're going to be on top of each other. You know, I don't even, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be bad. Like, like, heaven freaked me out because mostly of what I thought about heaven didn't come from Jesus and the one who created it and prepared it for you. It actually come from a Hallmark movie that my mom was watching, right? You remember that? That worked better in the 9 a.m. service. They know what Hallmark movies are. It's this channel that people, anyways, uh, I mean, most of us, our ideas of heaven come from ancient artwork or a movie or, or a sci-fi movie or, or some, something we've watched, some spiritual movie. That's our ideas of heaven. And so yet it causes us to put it in the same scope of what we're dealing with here, what we can see, what I can imagine. But see, Jesus or the scriptures tell us this, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for us. See, C.S. Lewis's conversion, maybe you don't know, he's a, the prolific Christian philosopher and writer who wrote works like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Chronicles of Narnia. And he wrote many other books that have helped shape, actually, uh, Christianity today. He wrote a book um, called Mere Christianity uh, that is foundational. I would encourage you to, to seek out that book, read that book. And he was friends with J.R. Tolkien. You remember that guy? Uh, you ever heard of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit? you know, uh, all the stuff that Harry Potter ripped off. Anyways, uh, and, <laughs> right. 
Yeah, even, uh, what is it, uh, J.K. Rowling, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, come on, cut it out, right? Uh, right? And yet, C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist. He, uh, he is someone who did not believe in God, was adamant that there was no God, and yet logic led him somewhere else. And his friend, uh, Tolkien, said to him one time, Lewis, as they studied ancient literature, what you found was in all of these ancient stories, there were similar themes, themes of good and evil, sacrificial love, and the lowly saving the day, the hobbit, hey, pa, uh, right, whatever. Anyways, and, uh, and uh, that was for Joe. <laughs> and uh, all, these, all, these, all these themes were the same. And yet it was like every myth was telling the same myth. And Tolkien said to Lewis, he said, Lewis, did you ever consider that there might be a true myth? That there might be something in us that we gravitate towards, that there might be a grand story that we're all a part of, that there's actually some true myth, something that all of these stories, think about your life in relation to story. I mean, like we sit around, we have our time together. Like think of even this moment, the Bible says that God has used the foolishness of preaching. Don't you think this is a little silly? Sometimes I do. Anyways, like you come in here, I sing and dance for you. And, uh, and somehow we create word pictures and stories and you feel like you're gravitated towards it. And somehow it changes your life when you leave here. And the Bible says he's going to use the foolishness of preaching to save sinners like you and I. We come in together and we listen to stories. Think about when I tell a story. Think about when you go home, you watch a screen on the wall and it's nothing but stories. You read stories. You want to be a part of stories. Then social media has lied to you and told you that your story is the only story that matters, right? And now you think I'm just the preacher in your movie. <laughs> and yet everyone is, is somehow invaded by story. So much so that marketing companies have learned to use story to get you to buy the things that you buy. Maybe you've heard of this little company. It's called Apple. You ever heard of it? And uh, if you don't know, take out your phone, turn it over on the back, and you'll know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you Android people, I get you. Anyways, uh, and, and, and yet... And yet most of us, this company, Apple has sold us everything. Man, or now we buy, we buy phones from them. We buy, we buy TVs from them. We buy computer. It used to be a little computer company. Remember that California back in the day, the, 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 the Macs, but maybe you don't know the story. You realize that Apple at one point almost completely went bankrupt. And at one time, maybe they did and almost lost it as a company and you remember this guy, Steve Jobs? Remember that guy? He, he was a part of the founding of Apple, right? But maybe you didn't know that at one time they fired him as CEO and he had to leave because he had some big failures. It wasn't that the products were bad. 
it was actually that the marketing was terrible and the and it was expensive then and it's expensive now but you buy it now don't you but back then i'm not going to pay for that and actually would go down as having one of the worst marketing campaigns in history for the mac 2 and they fired him and then they brought him back and then somehow through that ipods thousand songs in your pocket everything changed. Was it that the products got better? Was it that the prices got lower? No, they were always good. The difference was, is that Steve Jobs, during his time away from uh, Apple, spent some time in a little place called Pixar. And Pixar is all about telling stories. Uh, Maybe you remember the one that came out during that time, Toy Story. Everything seems to be about stories. Have you noticed? And yeah, the marketing changed for Steve Jobs. You can read some of this in Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, or Donald Miller's story brand, where they show you how the brilliance of Steve Jobs when he came back from Pixar to Apple, the marketing completely changed. And yet, if you lived in California and you drove around in LA during that time, you would have saw billboards all over the city that simply said two words, think different, think different. And see their marketing strategy changed. It changed from just selling you a product to inviting you to be a part of a story. See, I'm going to ruin every movie for you and every story is there is a hero and then there's an antagonist. There's a problem. And then in the middle of the story, the hero meets a guide and the guide will help the hero get the tools they need to become the hero and conquer the problem. And so what Apple started doing, like companies that we buy things from, instead of setting the company up as the hero, we have great products, we're amazing, they're beautiful. What they started doing was making you the hero in the story and being the guide who helped you with the product. If you remember marketing over the last bit, and I remember the first time I convinced my wife to let me buy an iPad, it was like Steve Jobs was coming out of my mouth. I was like, I'm going to hold the internet in my hands. (laughs) Like it wasn't about what the iPad could do, it was about what you could do with the iPad. Now, since Steve Jobs has passed away, you see the marketing change. Now it's laser lights and people dancing like, you want to buy one? And yet how we buy things and what you realize is this emotional pill, Simon Sinek says, we, we buy from our gut or our heart. And so you start with why you want to be a part of Something And yet StoryBrand from Donald Miller has taught companies to do this very thing where you are a part of a story and they want to help you as the guide, what you can do with your phone, with the iPad. Now, why is that important? It's because you are convinced that you are a part of a story. And yet if you just had the tools, if you just met the right people, if you just, you would have a grand Story. You would have all the things that you need. And so yet, uh, that's why marketing companies are telling you stories. That's why you sit and watch stories. That's why we gather today and hear a story. And yet what Jesus is trying to convince you of is that you 
are a part of the story, but the story's not about you. And that's good news. Someone say amen to that. Because you couldn't handle the weight of the story. And if you had all the right tools and all the right stuff and all the right money and all the all the stuff, you probably wouldn't make all the right decisions because you don't know everything. Someone say amen to that. And yet, when he says this, I am the way, the truth. What he's saying is I am the story, the story that you felt like you were a part of. It's not about you, it's about him, but you have a part. Your story is intertwined with his story. What he's saying is, is I have spaces and places bigger and more expansive than you could ever possibly imagine. It's not even entered into your imagination. It's beyond what you can see, touch, or feel, or even imagine. I mean, think about if it was true then, C.S. Lewis uh, responding and his conversion being a part of understanding why, yeah, every story's telling the same story, but what if there's a true story? Now think about every sci-fi movie that you've ever watched, every story about heaven, every story about Matthew McConaughey behind a bookshelf. All right, all right, all right, right? Like, People with my accent should not go to space, right? Anyways, and, and yet all of these sci-fi movies and these dimensional things, it says that it is not even entered into our imagination. It's bigger than any movie you've ever watched, any story, any show, anything you can see or touch or feel. It doesn't even come close to what he has prepared for you. And what does that do? What it does is it makes my moment seem smaller. So it makes that difficulty seem less difficult. What it does is it takes that problem, the things that stress, the things that bring anxiety, the things I don't know. I don't know how this is gonna work out. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to get through this story. He says, no, the story is bigger than the page you're living on. He's trying to say, no, believe in God. Believe also in me, in my father's house. There are many dimensions. There are spaces and places you've never seen, you've never even even imagine. It's not even entered into Hollywood's mind what God has in store for you. All of a sudden, it takes you from trapped in the moment, leaps you off the page, and he's saying, this is true. This is the way. This is beyond your present reality. This is the good news, and I'm the only way to unlock that. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying is, is I'm the one who wrote the story. I'm the one who's intervened in the story. He's the hero of the story. We're the ones in need of a savior. The problem of sin that has separated us from God the problem of Satan's deception and propping up other false gods. What he's saying when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, what he's giving you is the reality that there is no other gods. All other gods are merely false gods and propped up as a distraction because there is no other way. 
He is the way. He's not giving you the bad news from your reality. He's telling you the good news that he came and made a way where there seems to be no way. When he says, I am, he's used this word five other times in the gospel of John and he'll use it one other time where he'll say things like, I am the bread of life. You can imagine how frustrated that is. Like, what is he doing? He's trying to break you out of your reality because your reality is what you can touch, what you can eat, what you can have, what you can obtain. Like, Jesus, we're hungry. He's like, I'm the bread of life. You're like, that doesn't help me, right? Jesus, we're thirsty. Drink me. What? Right? What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know, right? Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Ah, it's a hard one. <laughs> Everyone leaves as they should, right? It's like, no, 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 you don't get it. What he's saying is I am life. And life is beyond existing. And you know it in your gut, you know it to be true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, I am, he's using the covenantal name of God. It's the same name that came from the burning bush to Moses. Who shall I tell them is sending me? He says, tell them I am that I am. What is he saying? I am everything. Everything beautiful, everything loving, everything good and glorious and gracious and peaceful. I am that. And anything outside of that is nothing. That's what he's saying. That ultimate fulfillment, ultimate joy is found. And he's making the claim that I am everything. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to unlock everything, it comes through me. And everything outside of that is actually nothing at all. And what you'll find, what he's saying, is you can, you can try to find it in your stuff. You can try to find it in relationships. You can try to find it in money. You can try to find it in having more stuff. And what you'll realize is people with everything oftentimes act as if they have nothing. So then don't buy into the lie. The truth is that reality is fundamentally different because of the person of Jesus. And you won't find soul satisfaction apart from him. But the good news is he made a way for you to have that. He came to us. See, the whole story is Emmanuel, God with us. God became a man. See, there was no way for man to be united with God because that's how we started. Remember that place called Eden? See, Eden was not like this place. Eden was different. It was a spiritual place and an earthly place. It was a place where heaven and earth co-reside. I made up that word, but I like it best. Heaven and earth co-reside. This is a place where man walked with God. They had everything. And yet, they wanted to decide what was good on their own and made choices. You may criticize Adam, but if Adam was named Sam, he'd made the same choice. 
The man decided to walk away. And yet from that time on, God has always had a plan to reunite heaven and earth. See, and he was always giving us these shadows of it, these stories. See, in the Old Testament, God told them to make a tent or a tabernacle. And in the middle of the tabernacle, they said, put this place called the Holy of Holies. And I want you to build it like this and have images of other places, heavenly places. And this will be the place where heaven and earth co-reside. In this place, this will be the place where God and man will be together in the Holy of Holies. Then it went from a tent to Solomon's temple. Same place, Holy of Holies. And then Jesus comes and John starts this book and he says, in the beginning was the word, the mind, the highest form of intelligence, all knowledge and all knowledge was with God, was God, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt means to pitch his tent, just like the tabernacle. That God came not in this tent, but he took on flesh. That's why the crazy cousin of Jesus, remember that guy, John the Baptist? Because everybody's got a crazy cousin, right? And if you don't know who your crazy cousin is, Right? He's got a crazy cousin. And what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth collide. Jesus is the place where God became a man and he brought things that were separate together. And then he says this. I am the door. I'm the way for you to also have this place of heaven and earth together. The Bible says that Jesus would say, I'll tear it. That's why he referred to himself as a temple. He said, I'll destroy this temple. And then in three days, I'll pick it up again. The veil was torn apart. The door was kicked in. He made a way where there seemed to be no way. He says, I am the door. What does that mean? He's the door to everything. He's the door to joy. He's the door to peace. He's the door that calms your anxiety, fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. I know everything. I am everything. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, God made a way for man by becoming a man in order to be the way for man to God. Then he says this, if you've seen me, now you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you know me. Now you know what everything is truly about. It's all about Jesus. So then what do I do? What do I do in the meantime? How many of you, when you go on a trip, uh, you pack three weeks in advance? (laughs) How many of you like me? It's like five minutes before you're leaving. (laughs) 
I don't want to forget anything, okay? All right? I just don't. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to forget something. And my wife's like, well, you didn't have to pack four kids stuff. So I started three weeks ago, okay? Right? Because that's what moms do. Thank you, moms. And yet, when you go on a trip, like right before I leave, you got the suitcase open, right? And it's like that moment of like you're not, you've not left yet because there's some stuff I, I, I might need something. I don't want to pack too early because I might need something in the meantime that I'm going to take with me. And so, so you got the suitcase open and you're ready, but it's not yet. See, that's some of what's happening here. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. But he says, I'll come again. How many of you, when your in-laws are coming to town, you try to remodel the house? <laughs> like mom and dad's coming. She's, or how many, how many of you went through the nesting phase when you had kiddos? None of you. You're all lying. Every one of you, right? Like I'm hearing stories like, we're going to have a baby. Dad's tearing a wall out. Like We're, we're going to expand this place, right? Because if someone's coming, right? But can I just say, if we have company, the house looks different than when we're there by ourselves. Hey, my God. Hey, man. Now you know what I'm talking about. You prepare. See, it's kind of this deal theologians would call the kingdom of God where we're at right now is the here and not yet it means there's two things we're doing we're packed ready to go but here's the reality you don't need anything anyways oh that was good right you've never seen a u-haul backed up to a hearse can't take any of it you don't need anything you can always be ready see the principle is he's coming again and he's everything anyways. So why am I focused on what I have while I'm here? Why am I trying to pack? Why am I trying to gather? Why am I trying to gear up? And then at the same time, he's coming again. So I got to get the place ready. I got to prepare like he's preparing. I'm preparing. I'm doing the work of Jesus, preparing spaces and places. See, I think the fundamental idea of heaven on earth is making a space and a place. See, someone made a space for you. I think about it years ago, the church went on a campaign to raise the money to build this building and someone built it. Why? Because they knew you were coming. They made a, they made a parking lot for your car and a seat for your, anyways. Uh, somebody prepared a place. I mean, think about what it does to you when someone has a spot for you. Or maybe when someone forgot to save you a seat. That moment you walked in the cafeteria and you, now you're starting to question who your friends really are because they didn't save you a seat. I mean, think about the story. Think about that. You remember that movie? Forrest Gump. Remember that? Yeah, I'm going to use that one, right? Man, that scene that echoes in your heart, you know what I'm talking about. Young boy gets on the bus person after person can't sit here seats taken right and then and then what happens it that voice man just warms you you can sit here if you want <laughs> right <laughs> yeah <laughs> right you remember that one right of all the scenes right invested in some kind of fruit company. Anyways, um, of all the scenes, that scene. Why? Because you know something fundamentally because it's telling you the story that you've always known. 
Something fundamentally happens to you when someone says, I got you a seat. I saved you a spot. We put this here for you. What it's like to go over for dinner and they prepared the house and they made the table and we got a seat right here for you. Something does something on the inside. Why? Because you're a part of a big story. This story is true. And here's the truth. He made a place for you. And he's got spaces and places that you can't even imagine and it's prepared for you. And he came and made a way for you to join that space. And now what are we to do? We're to make spaces and places for others. We're to dream about the person, the empty seat beside of you. Someone's supposed to be sitting there. Are you preparing that place for them? In your home, around your dinner table, have you made a space? Have you made a place? Have you made room? Think about the start of the Christmas story. There's no room in the end. So he was rejected, cast out. Why? So you could be accepted. He endured rejection and no vacancy. So he could prepare the space for you. Now, are you ready? Are you preparing? Do you have the suitcase? Or are you getting the house ready? Because it's here and not yet. He's coming again. And what he's asking you to do is gather as many people. Make a space and a place. Bring them in. And await the return of the king. Because he's coming again. And that's good news. Let not your hearts be troubled. The story isn't over. He is the story. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace that you would help us. We know what it's like to feel like we don't have a seat at the table. We know what it's like to feel excluded. But you were rejected so that we could be accepted. There is no room for you so you could make room for us. You made a way. You are the door to everything. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll come to the Father through you. We thank you. Help us to believe in such a way that it drives our behavior. We won't let anxiety and depression and fear, the fear of not knowing. Here's what we know. The story is bigger than the page we're living on. Here's what we know. <laughs> you have so much prepared for us that it's not even entered into our imagination what you've prepared will hope and hope will not disappoint. We'll hope in King Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. Let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?